All right. Well, good morning, friends. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. We are reading this morning from verses 31 to 46. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Today we are in our last week of uh, Missions and Mercy March. We are wrapping up our reflections on mercy and justice in particular. Um, as we have been um, repeating uh, the last few weeks, mercy and justice is one of the core values of our church. It is really one of the engines of the ministry that we do here. Um, and our hope in doing this has been that you would also hold mercy and justice as a core value for you in your own Christian life. Um, it's certainly been very personally enriching for me to reflect on this topic. I am very far from an expert myself, and I fall under Jesus' teaching here as much as anyone. Um, but it is a real delight to get to share this with you all this morning. And the title for this morning's sermon is Sheep, Goats, and Signs of Living Faith. Uh, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that uh, we heard from Pastor Hansu Jin a sermon entitled God Loves Cows. So we've got cows, sheep, and goats. It took us one month to turn this place into a zoo. <laughs> well, if you're able, I invite you now to stand for the reading of God's word. Your standing is an act of worship to the Lord as we read and receive his word. <clears throat> so Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. Receive now God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the, people, or separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Would you pray with me now as we ask the Lord for his help? O oh Lord, 
we thank you uh, that you are a God of mercy, that you've been merciful in your dealings with us. Oh Lord, we thank you that when you saw us in need, um, you had compassion on us and moved toward us at great cost to yourself. Lord, that is the heart that we want. And that is the heart that you call us to. So would you give us that same merciful heart? So would you soften our hearts, we pray, and give us the help of your spirit now that we may rightly understand your word here and the ways that you are calling us to follow you in your paths of mercy. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you do if you had only three days to live? What would be on your mind? What sort of things would you talk about? Perhaps you would want to tidy things up with your finances or tie up any loose ends with school or work. Maybe you would make sure to relax and get some good food in you before you go. Enjoy the time you have left. And certainly I imagine that you would want to say your goodbyes to those you love. Well, that is the situation that Jesus is in in our passage this morning. Jesus is three days out from his own crucifixion. It is Tuesday of Passion Week. In just a few short days, he's going to have to bear shame and beatings and humiliation, be nailed to a cross, and worst of all, be uh, bear the sins of the world and the wrath of God for our salvation. That's what he has coming for him. I wonder what you would be talking about with others if you knew that that awful fate awaited you at the end of the week. Well, in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus, being the ever-dedicated teacher, uh, decides that he should give his disciples a special lecture. And the topic of this special lecture is the end times. Now, the passage that we read this morning is the very last lesson from this longer discourse, and the subject, as you may have gathered, is Judgment Day. And, and as it turns out, mercy ministry, our topic of reflection, uh, makes a surprise appearance in this lesson about Judgment Day. For some reason, mercy ministry is on Jesus' mind, and mercy ministry has something to do with how Jesus wants us to live now in light of the coming judgment. So as we reflect on mercy and justice and the work of mercy ministry, I think we would do well to hear what Jesus has to say here. The passage is a bit lengthy, but the idea of it is really quite simple, and that is this. Here is our point of meditation for this morning. The proof of a heart that has received mercy is hands that do mercy. The proof of a heart that has received mercy is hands that do mercy. What I'd like for us to do this morning is a bit different from the usual swing of things. I think oftentimes we will like to take a passage in chunks, uh, take it a bit at a time. But uh, what I want to do is first uh, just walk straight through the passage and um, give us a sense of what the whole text is saying to give us the big idea. Um, especially because that's kind of difficult to do when you're just reading through. Um, so I want to walk us through the passage, uh, and then I want to draw out a few lessons that this passage teaches us about doing works of mercy and why that matters for the Christian life. 
Well, let's look at our text again. I'm going to go straight through, explaining as I go. Uh, please do stay with me, um, and then we'll slow down to reflect on what we've seen here. So verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So once again, we are talking about Judgment Day in this passage, the second coming of Christ, the day toward which all of history is moving. And Jesus is telling us what's going to happen on that day. He will return. He will sit on his throne as king. And all the nations, everyone who has ever lived, is going to have to come to account before the Lord. That includes you and me. And Jesus is going to judge them either righteous, and they'll go to heaven, or unrighteous, and they'll go to hell. He will sort humanity into these two groups, into this binary of righteous and unrighteous. And that is what this language of sheep and goats is about. It's about sorting and separation. Um, <clears throat> this is probably not common knowledge to many of you, I imagine, but uh, as this illustration that Jesus uses here uh, would have been uh, an, an illustration for everyday life for him, um, because as it turns out, uh, goats are a lot more sensitive to cold than sheep, and because of that, uh, shepherds would have to be in the practice of separating sheep from goats so that when it gets cold at night, they can move the goats into somewhere that's a little warmer. Um, so uh, it, it's similar to how when we do our laundry, we separate the colors from the whites. Um, there's this binary separation that takes place. Um, and so shepherds separate their sheep from their goats, and Jesus, in much the same way, is going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. So he's got the sheep on the right and the goats on his left. And Jesus turns first to the sheep. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So these are the sheep. They are the people who are blessed by God. And they are the ones who get to inherit the kingdom. In other words, the, these people, the sheep, are the ones who are going to heaven. And Jesus explains why they've been put on the sheep side. Verse 35, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So Jesus says that the sheep, the righteous, have been put on the sheep side because in their life, they helped Jesus when he was in need. They attended to his physical needs with food and drink and clothing. And they attended to his social or emotional, uh, his personal needs by welcoming him and visiting him. In other words, they did for Jesus what we know as acts of, uh, acts of mercy ministry, which is the focus of our reflection, um, going to the poor, uh, visiting the sick, the lonely, the isolated, um, <clears throat> going to uh, the weak and the vulnerable. And that is why they are on the sheep side, because they did that work. 
But these people, it turns out, are actually pretty surprised to hear that. Verse 37, then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? They're asking Jesus, wait, we, we did these things for you? When did that happen? Did you return really early and visit me in disguise or something? I remember helping people, but I don't remember you being one of them. That's, this is news to me. So Jesus explains, verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus says, well, no, you didn't actually do those works of mercy to me, but you did give food and drink and clothing to the least of these, the lowest in society, the poor and needy, the vulnerable. And I count that as if you did it to me. So that is the reason that Jesus gives for the sheep being on the sheep side. And then he turns to his left and he addresses the goats. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So as you can gather, the goats are the cursed ones. They are the unrighteous people. Instead of the kingdom of heaven, they will get eternal fire. The very same fire, the same punishment where Satan and his angels will go. So in other words, the goats are the people who will go to hell. And what follows at this point will be very much like what we just heard a few verses ago. Here's why the goats are on the goat side, according to Jesus. Verse 42, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. So the goats are on the goat side because they did not do these works of mercy ministry for Jesus. And so they're also surprised, verse 44, then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? It's as if they're saying, Jesus, when did, when did we ever see you in need? And you can imagine them saying, like, if we had seen you and we saw that you were in need, of course we would have helped you. But we, I don't remember ever doing that. But Jesus again explains, verse 45, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the, one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So Jesus says, you're, you're right, you didn't actually see me, but you did see others, the least of these, in need, and you did not show mercy to them, and I count that as if you did that to me. And then each side receives their reward. Verse 46, and these, meaning the unrighteous, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So go and do acts of mercy. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> no, 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 we can't end the sermon there because I think it's quite easy to read this passage and come to a very wrong conclusion about what it says. Namely, 
if our takeaway here is that you need to do mercy ministry, works of mercy, and if you don't, you'll go to hell, then I would say we have seriously misunderstood Jesus here. Now, I think our passage requires some deeper reflection, and that is what I would like to do for the remainder of our time. I'd like to draw out three lessons that I think will help us to understand both the, the true meaning of the passage and its implications for mercy ministry. And so the first point that I want us to see is this. Mercy ministry is not the gospel. Mercy ministry is not the gospel. I do want to clear this up right away because it may seem like that is exactly what our passage is saying, that mercy ministry is the gospel, that whether or not you get into heaven is a matter of whether or not you've done works of mercy, whether or not you help the poor and needy. But if you look at really the rest of scripture, you'll see that that cannot be what our passage means. If it were, then Jesus would be completely contradicting the rest of the Bible because at no point in human history have anyone's good works of any kind, whether in mercy ministry or, or what have you, at no point have any person's good works been good enough to get them into heaven, to count them as righteous before holy God, of course, with the exception of Jesus. The way that you are counted righteous before God and obtain eternal life is not by doing better. It's not by doing more. It's not by being better. Your righteousness, your worthiness, your standing before God is completely given to you by Jesus when you put your faith in him. I think nowhere is this set forth more clearly than in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, this is actually the whole reason why Paul wrote Galatians, that people were trying to add to the gospel. He had heard that some people in the church were going around teaching people that believing in Jesus by itself, faith alone, was not enough to save you, and that you had to believe in Jesus and keep the Old Testament law and rituals. They were teaching that in order to be saved, yes, you do have to believe in Jesus, but you need to seal the deal yourself. Jesus will get you most of the way there, but we need some participation on your end to, to really lock in your salvation. And Paul hears about this. And as a pastor who loves this church and loves the gospel, he is furious. And you hear that in what he says, Galatians 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. A curse on anyone who preaches another gospel. Another gospel, that's exactly what you get when you try to add good works to salvation of any kind. It is another gospel. It's a false gospel. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because, in fact, Jesus did not die to help you earn your own salvation, to hoist you along so you could be better, to get you most of the way there so you can fill in the rest. 
Jesus died and rose again to give you his own righteousness if you believe in him, because he knew that you would never be able to earn it yourself. Nothing that we can do, no amount of acts of mercy can make us right before God. Nothing can add to our righteousness. As Isaiah says, all our good works are as filthy rags because they are tainted by our sin. But Christ has given us his righteousness. He's given his righteousness to everyone who believes in him, which means that no amount of good works could possibly make you more righteous before God than you are now. When God looks at you, if you have put your faith in Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Christ and not your sins, your guilt. And that is good news. And so, so it is with works of mercy and justice. You can be the biggest humanitarian in the world. You can do amazing things to relieve world hunger and poverty and disease. And when you see people doing that out in the world, non-Christians, um, <clears throat> we should be thankful for that. We should encourage that and support that. Uh, we should praise God that people are doing that work of meeting real needs in the world that we are not able to meet ourselves. <clears throat> but even if you do all that, even if you become a hero to the world, it is not enough to make you right before God. It is not enough to save. In other words, a social gospel cannot save. Now, all of this has been to say that what Jesus is saying in our passage cannot be that you earn your salvation, you make your way into heaven by doing works of mercy. That would contradict the whole gospel, the whole purpose for which Jesus came. But at the same time, even though that is the case, that Jesus isn't saying we get into heaven by doing mercy ministry, we can't help but feel the force of what he's saying. It really does sound like he's saying you need to do works of mercy to get into heaven. We need to take Jesus on his own terms here. We, need to, we, we, we can't afford to make him say less than he's actually saying. Uh, we, we can't take the the teeth off the lion, so to speak. And so that brings us to my second point, our second lesson to be gained from this passage. Mercy ministry proves that you believe the gospel. Mercy ministry is not the gospel, but it proves that you believe the gospel. As we've just said, this passage, what Jesus is saying here, is very clearly, in, in light of the rest of Scripture, not talking about the grounds of your salvation. It is not the reason why you are saved. Works of mercy are not the basis for your salvation. But they are the evidence of it. And that is Jesus' point here. Jesus is saying that not only that works of mercy Jesus is saying, he's not saying that works of mercy are how you get saved, but the presence of works of mercy in your life is a really important way that 
you know and that you evidence that you are saved. The sign of true living faith in Christ is caring for the least of these. If, there, if the gospel is at the root of the tree, then it will bear the good fruit of social concern, generous social concern. I hope we can now fully appreciate just how strong Jesus' words here without misunderstanding and falling off the cliff and losing the gospel. Jesus says that the sheep, the ones who go to heaven, are the ones who cared for the least of these. And the goats, the ones who go to hell, are the ones who neglected the least of these. Jesus does not judge them based on how much they helped the poor. He judges them just like he will judge the rest of us on the basis of our faith. But the ones who were judged righteous, those who did have true faith, had works of mercy to show for it. Sheep don't become sheep by doing mercy, but sheep do mercy. And the implication is that the goats, those who were judged unrighteous, had no works of mercy because they had no true faith. Jesus is calling us in very strong terms to do some sober self-reflection here. If your faith does not work, if there is no active outward expression of your faith that moves toward others, if there is no fruit on the tree, if you are not doing works of mercy, if you have no social concern, no concern for the sick, the weak, the downtrodden, then perhaps you need to ask yourself if what you have is true faith at all. That is the call of this passage. James 2 gets at this point directly. Here's what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Seeing that people are in real need and meeting that need only in word and not in deed is a sign of a dead faith. It is not a living faith if our belief does not extend outward into reality for the benefit of others. If your faith doesn't work, if your faith doesn't move toward others, then it is dead. We need to ask ourselves very honestly, is our faith dead? Is there no fruit on the tree? As Jesus says in Matthew 7, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, if there is no fruit on the tree, if we look at our lives and we don't see any concern for the least of these, whether that's felt in your heart or acted upon, and we need to ask ourselves why. 
As I've been suggesting, one of the reasons that you can see no fruit can simply be that the tree is dead. This is the case with the goats in our passage. They did not bear the fruit of doing mercy because they had no living faith. They thought they had faith, but it was dead. The tree was dead, so of course they're not going to bear fruit. And Jesus' call here, if this happens to be any of you, Jesus' call is to wake up. Wake up to the reality of the lack of vitality. Um, consider whether you have accepted the gospel of Jesus' mercy or are just going through the motions. But to prevent you from despair, I will also assure you that there are other reasons why trees don't bear fruit as well. And I'll mention just one important one here. Sometimes trees don't bear fruit even though they are alive and healthy and mature purely because they just haven't been pollinated. This seems to be a growing problem uh, in recent years as bees have been having a much harder time. Um, you are seeing an increase of trees that aren't bearing fruit because they're not being pollinated. Um, but for trees like this, there's nothing wrong with the tree. As soon as the bees and the butterflies and the birds come along and pollinate the tree, then the tree starts to bear fruit as it should. And I think that that is very much a live option for some of us too. I would say probably many of us. And this leads us to ask the question, why are there so many genuine Christians who seem to lack this degree of social concern and generosity that Jesus calls us to? It could just be that just like the pollen has not reached the tree, it could just be that we have not truly made and understood the connection between God's mercy to us and the mercy that we are called to show to others. Um, <clears throat> I think we repeat often that the mercy that we receive flows into mercy for others, but I, I wonder if we thought about that connection. I think that it's quite possible that when this connection is made, um, the heart of mercy that sleeps inside every believer um, before it comes awake uh, will come awake. So we need to understand what gospel mercy has to do with mercy ministry. And so that brings us to our third and final point. Mercy ministry is motivated by the gospel. Mercy ministry is motivated by the gospel. So, so I, I wonder if you've thought about this connection before between God's mercy and mercy ministry. Um, what is our motivation for doing works of mercy? What should our motivation be for having social concern? I'll tell you, it's not guilt. I don't know, sometimes we do this to ourselves, like, ah, I, I know I should be doing mercy. I know I should be giving more to the poor and volunteering more of my time to help charitable causes, but I'm not, and I'm terrible, and that's awful. Um, but no. Christ has taken your guilt, so you don't need to feel guilt anymore in that sense. 
so not guilt. Um, our motivation should also not be a sense of bare obligation, although I think that oftentimes that is what it is as well. Matt says, I'll do it because God tells me to, even though I don't understand why. And it's not that either. But I think that um, oftentimes we tend to fall into one of these two uh, traps of thinking. But no, the motivation for mercy ministry comes from the gospel. Mercy ministry is tied to the gospel. It comes out of the gospel. And to understand this, I want to ask you a question. Uh, I, want, I wonder if you've thought about this. Uh, why is it that we call this kind of work of uh, helping the poor and the, the vulnerable, uh, the marginalized in society, why is it that we call that mercy ministry? Why is that the particular label that we've chosen for this kind of work? What exactly is merciful about assisting the poor and the downtrodden? What does that have to do with the mercy that we've received from God? How does this flow into that? Well, I realize this, this may already be obvious or well-established for some people, but uh, it wasn't for me, so uh, allow me this. I think that we may need to rethink or refine our understanding of what mercy even is. Um, when I was in college, I, um, I was confused about the difference between mercy and grace, just because you hear them used uh, together so often and usually pretty interchangeably. Uh, and this is how someone explained it to me. It's an okay definition, but I think it has some issues. Uh, this person said, mercy and grace are flip sides of the same coin. Uh, grace is when you get a gift that you don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't get the punishment that you do deserve. And I, uh, that's how it was explained to me. And I think I did get some decent mileage out of that. Uh, that did help me to understand how grace and mercy uh, are part of the gospel in, uh, in my understanding of the gospel. But it's uh, since then, I've come to take issue with, in particular, with that definition of mercy as not getting punishment that you deserve, because I don't think that that gives us the whole picture of biblical mercy. It's missing the central defining element. That is not how the Bible talks about mercy. The way that the Bible talks about mercy, the central defining characteristic, is the heart of God. You see, the words that our English Bibles translate as mercy in both the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament Greek are often also translated pity and compassion in many places. And I think that should guide our thinking. Pity and compassion bring our understanding of mercy closer to how the Bible talks about mercy. So when the Bible tells us that we've been shown mercy in Christ, it's not primarily talking about how God did not punish us for our sins. Yes, that is in view. That is something that God did out of his mercy, but that itself is not the, the, the mercy in God. The Bible is drawing our attention to God's compassion. How his heart breaks for you in love when he sees you, one of his precious children, in sin or in suffering. That 
is what is meant by the mercy of God. That is the mercy of God that we see in Ephesians 2, this wonderful passage. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So there's mercy and grace again, right? By grace you have been saved. You've been given the gift of salvation, which you didn't deserve. But God's heart behind that gift is a treasure trove of mercy, a cascade of pity and of compassion for you. Friends, this is why we care for the least of these. This is why we are called to go to the sick and the hurting, the poor and helpless, widows and orphans. It's not because Christians are great philanthropists who are just really selfless and give for the sake of giving. It's because we believe that God has looked on us with mercy, with pity, with compassion in his eyes, and he has met us in all our need at greatest cost to himself. That is the greatest show of God's mercy, the cross. When we think about um, all the objections and excuses that we like to make for not doing works of ministry, I, I can list them for you. Um, my time is mine and my money is mine. They've done nothing to deserve any of my time or money. If I give them my, my money or resources, they're just going to abuse them. Um, but Jesus did not take any of those excuses, even though he knew that we would abuse the gift, that we would keep going back into the same problems. Um, he knew that we would rebel, and most certainly we did not deserve it. But none of that stopped him from taking a cross for you in his mercy. Jesus has poured out his mercy on us, and we are to let the overflow fall on those in need around us. The theologian B.B. Warfield leaves us with a wonderful charge that I want you to hear. He says, oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and poor, to the thankless and undeserving. That is what Jesus did for you. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let me wrap up here with some final encouragements and applications. So you want to do this work of mercy ministry, but where do you start? Well, once again, with the full acknowledgement that I am every bit as much in the learning process as you may be, here are some brief suggestions. First, mercy starts with the heart. Like I just said, God's mercy is his compassion, his pity, his heart for us in our suffering and need. Frankly, it'll be hard to do 
works of mercy if you don't have any mercy in your heart. If you don't feel any compassion for the plight of the poor and needy and vulnerable, if their concerns are not making any appearance in your prayers, if it never comes to mind, if it doesn't yet disturb you that people are suffering in such ways, then take that to God and pray that God would teach your heart to go out to others in the way that his heart did for you. Begin to love them and pray for them and cultivate a heart of mercy for them. Second, mercy looks for and identifies need. Where is the need in my community? And I think you will find that as you develop a merciful attitude of concern for the least of these, as you pray for them, your eyes will begin to open as you become more sensitive to what their needs actually are. Not only will you identify the need, you will also identify with their need. That is exactly what Jesus did in our passage when he says, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me, or as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus is in his mercy for the weak and poor is identifying so closely with them that their problems, their problems, their struggles are his problems and his struggles. And when we have cultivated this heart of mercy, we will begin to identify with those problems as well. And they will become more urgent in our minds. And then lastly, mercy makes room in the budget and calendar. If giving your time and money starts to feel a little uncomfortable or inconvenient, you are on the right track. These things need to hurt a little bit. Again, not to belabor the point, but uh, Jesus took a cross in his mercy for you. Um, it's okay to make a little more room in your budget or to give up a Saturday morning uh, to come to Manna. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's a hurdle, but you can do it. Um, in just a few minutes, we are going to hear another presentation um, from our Mercy Committee on um, just things that we have coming up in our own calendar, ways that you can get involved. And coming to these things is a sacrifice, um, but that's what mercy does. It has compassion and it makes sacrifices to meet those needs. Dear friends, I imagine you sense that the mercy that God calls us to show is a tall order but it draws us to see the mercy that God offers. Never forget that. May we as a church be first steeped in that mercy, that concern, that compassion that goes out to the weak and poor and vulnerable. And then may we take this mercy to the least of these. Let's pray.